want to tell you about a very, very important evening we're having this Friday, April 21st at Office Hours, an evening with comedian Judah Friedlander and Payday Reports' Mike Elk, as well as Professor Mike Steinell. It's at Office Hours. We're doing a live taping of my podcast, and this is going to be huge. So I would really love it if you could come. It's free on Zoom. And if you sign up, you you can even listen in by phone. You don't need Zoom. Come meet Judah Friedlander. He's one of the funniest people on the planet. And then we're going to meet my hero, Mike Elk, the founding editor of Payday Report, along with our beloved Professor Mike Steinel, author of Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. Let me tell you about Mike Elk, because he's never been on the show before. After he was illegally fired by Politico for unionizing their newsroom, he received a cash settlement. And instead of keeping it for himself, he built Payday Report, which is the most important and authoritative labor news site in America. I am proud to have as my guest Friday night, April 21st, starting at 8 p.m., Mike Elk. We're going to talk about labor unionizing. He has the most authoritative and definitive strike map. He monitors every strike, every union organizing attempt in America. He just got back from Brazil, where he was covering Lula. He travels all over the world covering labor. Plus, world champion comedian Judah Friedlander and Professor Mike Steinel. It's going to be about 90 minutes. We start at 8 p.m. Eastern. Ask some questions, raise your hand, or don't. Just listen. Go to my website right now, hit office hours. That will give you the link. Or subscribe to my newsletter. Or look at the description of this episode right now. Wherever you're listening to this or watching this, in the description, you will see the Zoom link. Click on it. And if you don't have Zoom, it'll give you some phone numbers that you can dial into and listen to the interview. I look forward to seeing all my listeners Friday night at 8 p.m., April 21st, 8 p.m. Eastern. I look forward to seeing you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Donald Trump was the 45th president of the United States. I spoke with him earlier today. Was it scary being in in the jail? Well, not especially. I mean, except for all the Mexicans. But- <laughs> You know, Trump doesn't scare easily. No. You know what the guard said to me, David? What? You know what they told me I had? What? Cojones, David. I'm sorry, what? They told me I had cojones, David. Mm. I'm not making that up. Not making that up, David. You know what that means? You know what that means, cojones? Um. It's it's Honduran caravan for balls, David. Mm. Cojones. Hmm. You have cojones, David. You do. You do. You also have cojones. Oh, thank you very much. In your mouth. (laughs) In your mouth, David. That's where you have cojones. Is that really necessary? Yes, it was, David, because you're disgusting. (laughs) You're so gross, David, and so mean. It was very much deserved, David. I'm sorry. Okay, but tell me about your survival instinct. You're, You're there in the Manhattan 
courthouse. Here's the secret, David, to surviving in jail. Trump's little secret. I'm going to write a book. I, I should write a book, David. Mm -hmm. I really should. The secret to jail? Find the toughest guy in the room and establish dominance, David. I've heard that. Right. That's right. Right after I was fingerprinted, David, I looked around. I said, who's the alpha dog here? And, I, and, and you know what I did, David? What? I cold cocked him right on the spot, David. I just cold cocked him. And this guy was tough, David. Right. This guy was tough, sinewy, David. You know what that means, David? Muscles. He... Muscles. Yeah. It means he had muscles, David. Quite frankly, I'd never seen anyone that imposing, David. <laughs> Honestly, it was very frightening, David. Very frightening. Right out of central casting, David. Hmm. Just like I told Tucker, you could look all over Hollywood and you would never find a guy this tough, David. I'm telling you, David. And you, you cold cocked him. It was terrifying. Yeah. How, how dominant... And how central casty, muscular this guy was, David. Most men, I, I call it cotton. Most men, David, I'll tell you what, David, most men, let me tell you, most men would have crumbled, but not Trump. Not Trump. Not Trump. I looked him straight in the eye, David, and I said, you know what I said, David? I said, what are you looking at, punk? That's what I said. What are you looking at, punk? Oh. Right? Right? Oh. I know. I know. And I beat the living crap out of him, David. Hmm. Take a guess who it was, David. Guess who was the toughest guy? I, I don't. Go ahead and ask, David. I, I don't know who would ask be. Ask me who in the jail was the toughest guy. Toughest guy that I had to show dominance to because this guy was strong, David. This guy was sinewy and tough, David. Okay. Who, who, who was the guy? It was that... me, David. It was me. I was the toughest guy in the jail cell. And I had to show me who's boss. I had to kick my own ass, David. I won't lie. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I'm not going to lie and say it didn't hurt, David. <laughs> so you had to establish dominance. Oh, it hurt, David. You know what was the worst part, David? What? The rape. Because let me tell you something, the rape, I, you know, I don't have any problem down there at all. So when I rape me, mm -hmm. I'm going to feel it, David. <laughs> I'm gonna feel, now, listen, David, I know it was wrong. I know. Believe me, I understand the law. I understand right from wrong. I knew it was wrong, but. On the one hand, David, I had to show dominance. <laughs> and on the other hand, David, honesty, in all honesty, David, yeah. how could I resist me? <laughs> but the bottom line is, David, I took care of business. <laughs> I took care of business, David, and uh -huh. I, put, I put me in my place. <laughs> That was that. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Let's start. Hang on. 
Here we okay. go. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld joins us. He's a real psychiatrist, a Freudian psychiatrist. And Ethan Hershenfeld will be joining us shortly. I think he's getting a cup of coffee. So while we're waiting, you have a quiz for me. What is the I question? For Ethan, too. Oh, here okay. he, he's back. Here he is. We're, we're, we're whose, bir whose birthday is it today? Whose birthday is it today? So yeah. it, April 20th, Hitler's. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, you know, 420. Yes, that, but that's the wrong answer. It's not Shakespeare. It's not Shakespeare. You're McClock. Menachem Begin. Harold Lloyd. Harold Lloyd. Yes. Wow. I'm a big wow. fan of Harold Lloyd's. So am I. He was a wonderful guy. Yeah. Amazing, oh. amazing pornography collection, like tasteful. I'm being serious. I'm, I'm absolutely serious. He 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 made uh, when he retired. Uh, he liked to film uh, beautiful women. More power to him. Yes. Uh, well, happy birthday, Adolf Hitler. Happy marijuana day. Ha happy uh, uh, Hitler day. And. Who's that behind you? That would be Leslie cleaning up around her, doing, oh, doing, as, she, doing as she's told. Okay. And, yes. Uh, and Ethan is just going to be wandering back and forth. Ethan, are you pacing? Are you, you, you know, you look, what you're doing is you look like me, right? Or you look how I feel. He's, he's the wandering Jew. He's... What what's the matter, Ethan? Nothing. I was just uh, I'm in an Airbnb. I was just looking for somewhere to raise my computer up a little bit. You're at an Airbnb, and is that a lifeguard perch or a prison camp perch? What is that? Yeah, I think it's a lifeguard thing. I think it's a it's I think that's what it is. Yeah, it, it yeah exactly. And where's your Airbnb? It's in uh, Wilshire Park in Los Angeles. Oh, you're in Los Angeles. Yeah. I'm here for a, an acting workshop that started on Monday. It's a two-week thing with this acting coach. So I'm trying to, uh, you know, learn some new tricks. And Dr. Hershenfeld, you look like you're in a museum. I'm in my office. That's that's nice. It looks like they're... Very nice. I love it. Artifacts and... Uh, Many artifacts. Yes. So like, what... Like Freud had. Did he collect... Artifacts? Well, he had mostly Egyptian and Greek marbles and statues and statuettes. It was, um, he was a great scholar of that. After the war, somebody saw in a newspaper ad, I think it may have been in Germany or Austria, a description of a collection that was for sale. And this person immediately recognized that it was Freud's and he bought it. And it's now in his, you know, reconstituted office in London. Now, isn't it kind of pagan-like to collect totems and to feel like there's something of an import to inanimate objects? Didn't Abraham, isn't that the what's so great about Abrahamic religions is that the false idols were destroyed and we keep it all in our mind. Yeah, but he was he was not praying to them. He was uh, using them for inspiration 
for Greek myths and Egyptian myths uh, in order to understand uh, human culture and the human mind. Right. And for paperweights, because Vienna was very windy. <laughs> very breezy. There are a lot of gusts, zephyrs. It was famous. Great sailing in Vienna. What What is the dividing line between collecting and hoarding? Like I'm 17. A- 17 objects. <laughs> Less than 17, you're a collector, more than you're a pack rat. When do you know? I notice your office is very clean. The only thing in there, doctor, is what well, obvious, sparking joy. Are you good at throwing things out or do you? I, I hold on to certain things. I, I'm, it's, a, it's a constant struggle. But, but all of those things that you see behind me... Um, have a personal meaning to me. So I just like to look at them. I am of the school that believes, and not everybody agrees with this. Some people have a very stark office, so they don't want to influence the patient or give away too much or whatever. I believe in having an office that is pleasing to me because I spend a lot of time in it. And Dr. Benjamin. Yeah, I was has, just going to ask Dr. Uh, Benjamin, author of Today Is Now, what does your office look like? It's, a, a very, it's actually a different um, focus, a different theoretical focus <laughs> vis-a-vis the space in which the therapeutic exchange occurs. Uh-huh. Dr. Benjamin's philosophy is make sure that your office is within your apartment so you don't have to pay extra rent. <laughs> That's a good his, his okay. main thing. Yeah. yeah, just a simple curtain can separate the living space and the pets and the food <laughs> smells from the quote-unquote office. And is that a metaphor for the brain and the dark recesses? Of it's the really it's more of an imperative from the accountant who says you can't <laughs> afford uh, also to rent an office. So, yeah, now, do you put plastic slipcovers on the couch that your patients lie on? No, the be- it's best to just apply the plastic slipcover directly to the patient. <laughs> that way, the minute they're in there, if they lean against a wall, if they touch a light switch, they don't get any of their greasy. I notice that the patients tend to have a lot of grease there. So you scotch guard the patients before they sit down. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So there are no permanent stains. From- yeah. yeah, that's the same. It's the same reason why I, you know, I wear a shower cap all day. No. It's a similar idea. You never know when. It's unrelated, but it's-, it's You never also, know when it's going to rain. Yeah, or when you're going to suddenly be in a shower. Be in a shower. So bring soap and a shower cap. Yeah. And d- don't waste. Yeah. You want to see a, a some interesting artifacts of my collection of my yes. office? Yes. Okay. Show and tell. Uh, the elephant man's tell. bones. <laughs> Unbelievable. I thought- the Jackson estate kept those. Can you see this clearly? Uh, it looks like a... Oh, that's a reflection. You got to go from a lower angle. Oh, that's... I know that one. Yeah, I won't tell, but I know what that is. Uh, it's... Uh, oh, it, it would be uh, a woman being hypnotized. Yes. I'm trying to remember the name. It wouldn't be Freud. Uh, no, Freud was a medical student. Oh, don't Brewer. say, don't say. I know who it is. I know who it is. It's either Penn or Teller. I can't remember <laughs> who it is. 
I used to know the name. I want to say oh, Merman. Merman, like Ethel Merman. It's Merman. That is Freud right there. Right. This is a famous me, uh, moment in psychoanalysis. It's, a, it's Mesmer. Scholarship Mesmer. To study with Charcot, oh, who Charcot. was a very famous neurologist in Paris, in Salpetriere. He also was the inventor of the cold cut, the charcuterie. <laughs> <laughs> so is was it Mesmer? Is, is that his name? Mesmer is somebody else. This is Charcot. He hypnotized hysterical women, which was the AIDS, so to speak, of the 19th century. It was not understood. It was ubiquitous. It was ruining lives. And Freud wrote that when he saw Charcot hypnotize a woman out of her hysterical state, he suddenly got the idea of the unconscious mind and how powerful it was. Now, when you this, when you say there was a hysteria craze, there was a hysteria hysteria, basically. Yes, yes, yes. It was catching. Yeah. Oh, it is. The, you know, you read about um, schoolgirls of a certain age who they all the whole class or sometimes the whole school starts fainting or um, getting um Paralyzed, or it's, it's a group hysteria, absolutely. Or or, uh, or wanting to buy those mini muffins, <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or Uggs. They want to wear Uggs. In all seriousness, um, go ahead, Doctor. Uh, the Doctor yeah. Benjamin. No, I wanted to say the other way in which the hysteria craze of the late nineteenth century resembles, in a superficial way, the AIDS epidemic of the nineteen eighties is that. About a decade later, every single play off Broadway in Vienna was about hysteria. <laughs> and the hysteria quilt. Right. Hysteria. Which I forget. Don't forget the hysteria. So what is hysteria? What, what does it mean? Like if I, 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 allow me, doctor. I allow you, sir. Okay. Like, let's say, okay, I'm going to, I'll see if this works. So. This is uh, Rodney Dangerfield said, uh, my wife and I had 20 great years. Then we met. <laughs> See, that reaction of yours, that's hysteria. It's when you just, you laugh your ass off. Or is that something else? That's something else. Oh, okay. Okay. That's hysterical. Hysteria, oh. hysteria is, Galen described hysteria. It's been around for a long time. It's a Greek word meaning uterus. Like hysterectomy. Right. They, they thought in the olden Greek days that it was a malady caused by a wandering uterus. A floating. In fact, a floating uterus, right. which is actually a popular birthday balloon. <laughs> it's a boy. OK, sorry. Go ahead. A floating oh. uterus. What is a floating uterus? <laughs> okay. This goes, it moves around the body, and whichever part of the body it moves to was thought to be the one that was exhibiting the symptom, like a, a paralysis or an inability to speak. Go on, doctor. Is that true? Real doctor? No, of course not. <laughs> that's what was thought. Well, that is what was thought. Oh, thought oh, 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 oh. For yeah. 2,500 years, yes. And it was all further thought, incorrectly, that only women 
could become hysterical because only women had a uterus. This also is patently untrue. Right. And Jerry uh, Lewis got into trouble saying women aren't hysterical. I remember that interview. There are, okay. So, um, that's so, it. That, so how does that, it, how does hysteria manifest itself? Any way you can imagine a, I once told a, a story of a man, actually, early patient whom I saw, I got a call. A guy says, um, I've been to a million doctors. They all tell me to see a shrink, but there's nothing wrong with me. So I said, well, come on in. We'll have a talk. So he comes in. His wife is leading him in by the hand. He's bumping into things. He says, I'm blind. And his eyelids were flipping up and down. And um, she sets him in a chair and then she leaves. And I say, so what's the story? He says, I've been a gambler my entire life. David, you don't remember this story of mine. It, it really hurts me. But oh, boy, I remember it. I don't remember yeah. this. I know you don't, but I told it's you. Three, it's from three years ago. We've been doing this for three years now. So Right. Okay. I've been a professional gambler my whole life. I have bet literally suitcases full of money on college basketball, on football, on baseball, and you name it, I will bet on it. Sometimes I win, sometimes I lose. And I became blind recently. And all the doctors tell me that my eyes are absolutely fine, but I'm pri I promise you I cannot see a thing. So I said, well, tell me about your life. So he says, well, you know, I live in a three-room apartment in the Bronx. Uh, my 17-year-old daughter's pregnant. My 18-year-old son is on heroin. My wife and I do nothing but fight. And he said, and this is exactly what he said, he said, I woke up one morning and looked at what my life had become, and I could not stand seeing it. Now, he had absolutely no idea what he was saying. He thought he was just telling me right. you know, his stuff. But, but this was like my first year of practice. So I, I learned later not to do this kind of stuff. So I said to him, did you hear what you just said? <laughs> <laughs> the impulsive psychiatrist. It's a, it's a great idea for a sketch. <laughs> In the first 20 minutes of the interaction, I say, you hear what you said? He says, no, what did I say? I said, you said you could not stand what you saw. So you stopped seeing. The guy stands up, stares at me with absolute hatred, storms out of the room without bumping into anything. <laughs> <laughs> and to this day, I have no idea, was that a permanent cure? Or did he get into the waiting room and close his eyes again? Incidentally, he... Wow. he uh, and you never saw, and you never saw the check. <laughs> There's no check. That no. in the old, I can't see ruse. I do that no at restaurants money. all the time. I can't. No money changed hands. Yeah. But that's hysteria that there's some thought, some feeling, some idea that is expressed through the body. So in this case, he was expressing through his eyes. I can't 
stand seeing what a mess I made of my life. Like today, I was expressing um, through my body that I had had two vegan burritos yesterday. Mm. And how did you through just feeling full? Through just feeling full. full. Before my, what were? Let me ask Doctor Benjamin this question. Yes, there are puns in our dreams. So what were what were dreams like before language? It was. So you're saying there are puns in the and, and symbolism and like, I can't yes. see, I don't like to see what my life has become. So then he stops saying, so language words become metaphors for conditions. Right. Before language dreams were like, uh, they were like silent movies. <laughs> See the silent movie. That's what it was. It was just, and the people moved kind of fast. <laughs> And there was a lot of streetcars and bowler hats. Everyone had bowler hats. We're back to Harold Lloyd. Yeah, even back, even the women had bowler hats. And people were, things were always falling, and it was and there was also a lot of piano music in dreams for language. Tons By of the way, he is absolutely one thousand percent correct because dreams are primarily visual, and the words that we attach to them. Um, we, we may probably put them in later. It's, yeah. it's, it's a visual experience. Did Moses yeah. interpret the Pharaoh's dreams or did I dream that? That was Joseph. 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 So Joseph. Interpreter dreams. So Joseph was like the first psychiatrist. Interestingly, he was. But uh, little, little known fact, he spoke no Arabic. <laughs> he didn't know what the hell he was just making the whole thing up. There was he, another prisoner. Um, he, just, he just knew how to say, go on. Exactly. Go, go on. Yeah. And, that, right. and he also knew the word fascinating. <laughs> and he, he, there was one more phrase he knew in Arabic, which was, I'm sorry, our time is up. <laughs> in fact, that's why they invented the sundial. The, yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the 50-minute sundial. The 50-minute sundial. <laughs> L.A. Do you worry about your son when he's in L.A.? My son was in London and I, I worried. Do you, do you still when do you stop worrying? You know, I worry about my son 200 percent of the time. What are you worried? What are you worried yeah, about? And I'm not worried like like yeah. uh, mashing my teeth. Yeah. You know, how's he doing? What's going to happen? Uh, you know what? Let's 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 reframe that. Let's turn that frown upside down, <laughs> David and Phil. What you're both <laughs> talking about is just parental love. That's not worry. It's just you want things to go well for them. Right. Okay. You don't have to look at the burnt crust. You can look at the whipped cream on top. <laughs> and and driving through L.A. Yes. Do you sometimes worry that they're right? And you're wrong that you drive around and you see the wealth and the superficiality and the plastic surgery. And you wonder. I, I eschew. God bless you. I eschew, I eschew generalizations, ethnic, religious, geographic, interplanetary. I mean, some people say Martians are this and Martians are that. <laughs> Martians are they come in all different shapes and sizes. So, so there's really a specific type of Martian you hate. There's a type of Martian that most are the actors. That's why you see the Martian actors are the ones you see in the movies, the yeah. green ones. Right. There are lots of different kinds of Martians. No, I really think that um, on, 
in the most superficial sense, there is, I mean, these neighborhoods here are incredible. The blue sky, the lawns, a lot of which, to their credit, are now AstroTurf, which I noticed, which is great. And they make it look pretty real, but it's great for the environment, not too much water. Um, and, you know, a lot of people here are struggling. It's the same thing. Um, I, a lot of homeless. There's a ton of homeless people. And then I'm in this, I'm just doing this acting workshop for two weeks. Uh, and um, one of my classmates here is a guy, he's an actor from Burma, from Myanmar, who's who fled the military dictatorship. He's having to start his career over here with just a year of English. He's, you know, already been in movies and, and commercials over there. Um, there are people from Australia. There's a there's a guy from Belarus who's in the who's so a he, he's a he's a he's a big shot in Burma. If he stays, he'll get arrested. And he'll he, be in jail. He was in hiding. He had to flee across the border. And in L.A., and, he can't get arrested. Nobody. will. <laughs> that's right. got to be but, tough. Um, anyhow, no. Um, is it superficial? I don't know. I, I mean, I really don't believe in these these stereotypes like people in New York are deeper in some way. No, come on. I think San Francisco is superficial. I think huh. I think you wake up every day and it's so beautiful and mm. so nice that you there's you can't be miserable. And next thing you know, you're 120 years old and you haven't done anything. Could be. Um, now, go ahead, doctor. Real doctor. Here's a generalization that I stand by, that I figured out when I was 17 years old, reading Crime and Punishment. And I thought to myself, if Dostoevsky had grown up in Miami Beach, <laughs> he would be writing Chicklet. He could not have been writing like this unless he was in this miserable, cold, hostile, I mean, so that's a generalization I, I stand by. But that's actually not a generalization. That's a, that's very specific to Dostoevsky. And then there's another guy named, I think, uh, Hansen, Knut Hansen, this guy who wrote Hunger. Right. Christianaville or whatever, the thing that became Oslo. Similar time period, similar level of poverty and misery. And then there's guys, there's Hem Hemingway. Isn't he in the Keys, in the beautiful Keys? In Florida, not far from Miami, writing deep, psychological, dark things about human suffering. But he so, went to the First World War as an ambulance driver. So he, okay. true, true. he suffered. Yeah. yeah. Right. They used well, to say I just I just read a wonderful line that one poet said about another poet. Maybe somebody said about Yeats. The idea was that the suffering of Ireland was what made him into a poet. It was said more elegantly than that because it was said by a poet, but that was the main idea, that he had to be a poet because of the suffering of Ireland. That was what they used to say about stand-up comedians, that only New York could produce stand-up comics because the suffering is so intense. But then people, Robin Williams came out of San Francisco. People can be in happy places and still be suffering <laughs> in many ways. You can, su right. you can suffer. I remember going yeah. to my boss's house and it was the most, I've never seen a house like this. I walked in, I went, wow. And I paused and then I said out loud, I could be miserable here. I see, I see how I could be miserable. And he went, that's right. 
I said, well, I'd rather be miserable here, actually, than we're, than we're, when you see people with lots of money buying beautiful things, it does bring them what? It brings somebody like Barbara Streisand, who creates this living dollhouse in Malibu for herself that must have cost millions of dollars. It might, maybe it doesn't bring her happiness, but it brings her what? Uh, calm? A, a, a something. There must be something to having all this money because they don't want to give it up. No, they don't want to give it up. That's for sure. So there must be something. Or there's something that they hope was will will derive from it. But, but and sometimes it does. Some people with a lot of money do manage to do meaningful things for themselves. But others are just like hoarders who we started out with today. Right. If you're just hoarding stuff for the sake of owning it, I don't think you get much pleasure. I think you, you can get relief from certain things. You can insulate yourself from noise and from other things that you find troublesome in a way that if you didn't have that dough, you couldn't create that kind right. of physical space. Right. But I think ultimately anybody, even if you don't have a lot of dough, I mean, it's a cliche, but I think it is true that you really, the only real happiness or contentment or joy or fulfillment you can get is from doing stuff for other people. Whatever the hell that is, if it's making well, I, You know what? I want, to, I want you to be joyous. Can you come over and do my dishes, please? I want to see a smile. I, I want to give you joy. I got dishes. You know, that's actually, just thinking about it. That's one of the chores I enjoy. I might have mentioned this before. I can't stand making a bed. I, I, if I, I mean, it makes me crazy. I can't make a bed. I like doing the dishes. It feels somehow, I don't know what it is about it. Me too. Like the soap, the warm water. Although environmentally, it's better to use the dishwasher, which is counterintuitive for a lot of people, but it uses a lot less water. So yeah. 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 There, there's something about, I think it's creative to do dishes, to clean. To me, writing is cleaning up. It's cleaning up your thoughts. So when I start cleaning, I get creative. What are you reading? And you get the soap in your ears. I get the soap in my ears. What are you reading? Right now I'm reading this monologue. I'm about to lay it down. It's an audition for a video game. And it's a funny, it's an interesting thing. It's the kind of character I've never auditioned for before. He's totally off his rocker. He's on a combination of meth and coke. Mm. And it says um, he he's wild. He's rambling wildly, like speaking really fast and, and kooky. So that's what I've been reading. So I'm about to tape that. Yeah. Are video games now more profitable than movies in Hollywood? I read somewhere that they've that that you're more likely to get cast in a video game these days than a movie. Is that true? I don't I don't know. I, I was. I got cast in one of these once for the role of a Moroccan warlord. Mm -hmm. I recorded it. I got paid. And then they recast it because I was I was making up that Moroccan Berber accent and right. I had a coach and all that. And then they decided, I, I don't know why, but I assume they decided they wanted an actual Moroccan. Have but you ever played case. a video game, Dr. Hirschenfeld? Did I ever play? Um, I think my kids a hundred years ago tried to teach me how to play Pac-Man or right. something like that. And I was a total bust. And I threw it on the ground and never right. tried again. Stomped on it. But these, on it. 
I am reading something I'd like to plug. It's a book of poetry. It's wonderful, called Paradise by Victoria Riddell, R-E-D-E-L. Slim volume, not expensive. The kind of poems that you want to read he see, he, I, 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 I must have offended him or something. What's he holding? No, I wanted to share a book. Oh. Because I, I think that Alan, our cousin who passed away recently, I think he gave me this. This is something that he loved. Zen in the Art of Archery, which is was published uh, in the middle of the last century. I love the cover, the art. It's a beautiful, yeah, and it turns out the cover is not from something. It's cover art made for the book. It's really cool. It's a study of, well, he was a professor, a German professor of philosophy living in Japan and took up this art form of archery. And it's it's a it's a slim book also that it's about what the teacher teaches about how to do this thing. Right. Um, and it's beautiful and simple. And there are lessons basically for, for life. Right. And in the middle of the last century, that was a very popular book along with Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Which I think was must have been a, a riff on this. It was more of a spoof. It was more of like a counterculture's riff on this, I believe. I'm not okay, sure. maybe you're right. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Robert Piercing, I guess. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is a real psychiatrist. Fascinating. This is the first time we've come from your office. This is it is, yes, yes. First time I'm um computer was here. And <laughs> it would be funny if you go <laughs> now you I say goodnight, and then you turn to the patient, go, continue, madam. <laughs> you were saying about your father. <laughs> Today is now by Dr. Today Samuel Benjamin. We uh it gets the Feldman guarantee if you yeah. oh I'm also going to plug the book by the, this is the, uh, the, the, the acting studio that I'm studying at. I'm doing this class at, it's called Margie Haber Studios. Mm -hmm. And she has a book that's about acting, but it's also about life. And so I feel like it would sit well on the shelf next to Dr. Benjamin's book. Yes. It's called Fuck Your Comfort Zone. Right. Take a risk and become the lead in your own life. Right. So it's like acting and living. So that's a plug for my teacher's book. And I, I read her sequel, Fuck My Comfort Zone, which. <laughs> All right. Sorry. This show is degenerating. <laughs> I apologize. No, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. And thank you, Ethan. We'll see you next Thursday. See you then. Okay. I think so. Great job. Thank you. Adieu. Thank you. Adieu. 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 You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump.